Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegamelch. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. I hope wherever you're listening from, you're safe, you're social distancing and otherwise uh, making it through these these uncertain times as uh, as well as possible. Uh, thanks for taking the time to listen in today. Today, we have a really, really interesting conversation with Lawrence Werde and Tom Achoki, who represent the COVID-19 in Africa Data Science Initiative. And among other things, they're leading some modeling efforts to look at the spread of COVID-19 across the continent, uh, as well as uh, how can that information be used in policy decisions and what it means, both in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also what lessons this can teach us for broader resilience building uh, in Africa, in the various countries countries across the continent and across the globe. Uh, This conversation was recorded on May 15th, 2020. So any discussion of the models, the data, the uh, how long it's forecasted out, etc. Keep that in mind on on when the actual conversation took place. But I think so much of the conversation and the insights provided are are very much evergreen. So whenever and wherever you're listening to this, I I hope you enjoy it as much as I did uh, in having the conversation with them. So with that, I'll stop talking. We'll uh, we'll move into the conversation. And like always, we'll see you on the other side. All right. So thanks, everyone, for joining today. Uh, Today, we're talking with colleagues from the COVID-19 in Africa Data Science Initiative with some really, I think, great work to talk about in terms of modeling the spread and really looking at the situation in Africa um, and across the continent for COVID-19. My guests today are Lawrence Ware. Uh, He's an assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences at Boston University's College of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, uh, Sargent College, and in the Department of Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. His research focuses on application of health economics and the estimation of the impact of reforms within health care systems, as well as with uh, insurance programs on the outcomes of marginalized and at-risk populations. He's also interested in the complex emergencies and disasters, HIV AIDS financing mechanisms and geospatial aspects of public health, and he received his PhD in health services research, health economics from Brown University. Also joining is Tom Achoki, a, phys- a physician uh, who has trained in public health, infectious disease, and tropical medicine at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. He has his PhD in health services research and pharmaceutical policy from Utrecht University and an MBA from the MIT Sloan School of Management. Uh, Tom had his postgraduate training and research at the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, where he also held a faculty position and he's held roles of increasing responsibility in public health services, academic institutions, private sector organizations, and corporate foundations, uh, and is very active in healthcare entrepreneurship, innovation, and research with a specific focus on digital health and data analytics. An incredibly well-credentialed group we have talking with us today. Uh, Tom and Lawrence, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Um, so 
why don't we start with just uh, a little bit of an overview. Um, if you want to talk a little bit about, I'm not sure, uh, Lawrence or Tom, who wants to start, but if you want to talk a little bit about um, what is the, the COVID-19 in Africa data science project? How did this come into being? Uh, what kinds of work are, are, are you guys engaged in? You know, uh, as, uh, as you outlined in the introduction, we, we work together on health systems uh, uh, in global health settings. And, and so uh, when COVID-19 was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization, uh, we decided to uh, come together and see how we could use our expertise around healthcare systems and uh, infectious diseases and disasters to be able to uh, help the continent understand and contextualize what is going on, uh, but also uh, begin to envision what uh, responses and what the health systems needs uh, would be. Uh, so it was, it, was, it, um, it was the coming together of efforts we've engaged in over the years uh, in different settings uh, and being able to uh, tap onto those synergies uh, to try and figure out what was happening or likely to happen on the African continent, given what you were seeing in Asia, Europe, and the United States. Great. Uh, just to add on that, I think, uh, thanks, Lawrence. Uh, one of the things which is quite unique about our team is um, we are a very multidisciplinary team, which is um, drawn from uh, different countries in Africa. And uh, these are professionals scattered in different parts of the world, including Australia, including places like in the United States, and part of them are actually involved in health systems in Africa. So this responds to a need, given that this is a team that has collaborated over time, and uh, we do understand the health systems of uh, African countries. When this, when this pandemic came up, we were very clear that there's definitely something that needs to be done, and uh, we uh, very quickly moved into action. Uh, some of our colleagues, actually, uh, Johannes Kinfu, who was in, uh, uh, in, in Australia at the time, was actually in quarantine because he traveled. And from there, we started having this discussion of saying, how do we get this thing, uh, this research agenda moving? So it's quite uh, uh, interesting that we came together very quickly and we've been able to uh, make some progress in this case. You know, it's, it's been really interesting to see as well, too, and just kind of, you know, I, I know here in the U.S., we've been so focused on competing models and their use by uh, politics and the politicians and things like that. But to actually kind of see some of this really uh, quality modeling being done, taking a look at, at um, areas of particularly those involved with um, um, uh, sustainable development and, and the global community, um, very, very interested in uh, what is going on across Africa. Um, and and I, I know this, this work you, you mentioned, your target audience um, includes policy, research, funding, sort of how to best inform the response with um, this data that's available, which uh, is great to include kind of this data-driven approach. In, in terms of the scope, right? So, you know, we, we talk about Africa as a continent, but of course is made up of a lot of different countries. Um, how are you uh, sort of working uh, with the continent and within the continent and kind of bridging between kind of the, the continent-wide systems and, and the national systems that, that make up the greater whole. So, um, uh, Jeff, what we are really doing is um, as a, a collaborative team, uh, we, we want to look at Africa as a whole. So uh, the first uh, initiative that we did is really to look at 
using the available data and trying to project and say, where is this epidemic going? Um, and being able to look at all the countries in Africa. So the, the first paper that we actually put out has uh, been able to uh, give trajectory of the epidemic for the 47 countries in Africa. And uh, this um, effort was uh, through the uh, collaboration of the broad team and looking at all these countries because we have uh, contacts with different uh, countries within the health systems in those countries and being able to say um, what kind of information needs they have. Um, so uh, we, we, we've done that. And then uh, the other thing is we, we are not doing this only by ourselves. We've actually been able to collaborate with other institutions. So for instance, we're working with uh, uh, national uh, ministries of health. So because they would want to understand specific uh, contextual factors because we are modeling these, taking into account the contextual data within those, those healthcare systems and how to respond. Uh, we're also working with uh, regional uh, organizations and also uh, the continent-wide research agencies, and I think uh, Lawrence is going to talk to that. Uh, and, and this is not only, we're not only doing the projections of looking at how the epidemic is evolving, but we want to give uh, research that can actually be informative to understanding how health systems can respond given the constraints that they face and, and being able within that broader framework of strengthening healthcare systems and innovation. Lawrence? Yes, yes. Thank you, Tom. Uh, and just to add on to what uh, Tom has said, uh, it's true that the, the continent is diverse. And one of the things that uh, we did in the initial model was to account for travel into the continent. Uh, to try and uh, model what air traffic looked like for different countries to be able to account for uh, the diversity and the likelihood of uh, uh, the virus being introduced uh, into the African continent and it was going to happen at different rates for different countries. And we were also very careful uh, in the initial model to only project until June 30th because we knew that this is, this is a dynamic uh, event and things are likely to change. And so, um, you, you know, most of the models you see out there uh, kind of do uh, six months to a year projections. But we limited this to June 30th, acknowledging the diversity and the dynamic nature of countries across the continent. And, and uh, just to add on what Tom said about working with different organizations, we, uh, we've been uh, in touch with the, the Africa CDC, uh, which is part of the African Union and uh, leading, uh, helping African countries uh, to respond adequately, uh, including even sourcing for uh, supplies and uh, PPE and reagents uh, that are becoming uh, quite tough to get because African countries are having to um, kind of struggle in the same market space with European countries and America and Asian countries. And so uh, working with these different organizations, uh, the ministries of health in Ethiopia, in Kenya, uh, to be able to uh, help them in real time, uh, think through um, how their specific uh, circumstances in their countries and how they can use that to respond and also prepare themselves. It's really, really interesting, and I, especially that the um, 
limiting the forecast uh, time horizon, sort of acknowledging all of the uncertainty and the decision making um, that could do that. You know, some of the things you alluded to, I remember looking into some of the food security issues uh, just in the last few weeks. And um, I think it was uh, The Economist had a really good summary, sort of looking at how countries have restricted exports because of uh, anticipated need within their own country and have, um, there's also less transport between countries right now, limiting the amount going and also a bit of a bidding war uh, over the limited products that are available, making certain countries, particularly certain vulnerable areas in, in Sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere, very vulnerable to food shortages um, because of these exports. Um, so it's 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 very interesting that that these sort of variables that aren't known yet so rather than create the illusion right of precision in the future mm -hmm. um but to acknowledge Sorry. that it needs to be rerun and relooked at I, I hope i summarized or interpreted that correctly yeah yeah exactly yeah exactly. so so with what you are and actually actually before i get into what you are seeing with the model i was wondering um if uh, uh, you could spend a minute just kind of getting a little wonky with what the model is, how it's developed, how it's run, kind of the design, just kind of some top line stuff. Uh, I normally don't get too, too technical, but actually there's a lot of uh, interest right now in these models and how they're designed and what they're doing. So I wonder if, if uh, either of you can kind of give a snapshot on just a little bit of the technical side of the model. On So I'm, I'm just going to mention two points and then uh, Tom, you can fill in. Uh, I think one thing that is unique about our model is, is two things. Uh, the, the, the first thing um, is that it is uh, a covariate-based model, uh, which is unlike most of the AP models out there. Uh, so that makes our um, model unique because it allows us to account for the context and variability across the continent. The other thing is uh, because of this travel time information, we were able to use that as an expansion factor to account for how um, the virus would get into the continent. And once it is there, then you know, now you have to think about the community spread. And that is why uh, uh, a covariate-based model um, was the best model uh, to try and uh, use uh, for the initial forecasting. Of course, that does have its limitations, uh, which I'll let uh, Tom talk about and how we've tried to modify that model for. Yeah, so so thanks, uh, Lawrence. Uh, to that aspect of a covariate-driven model, accounting for the uh, in-country uh, factors, it, it's really, I think, a, a great improvement. But also, one of the things we are very cognizant of is the fact that the epidemic does evolve. So having that initial expansion factor and then being able to use other covariates at different levels, looking at how the uh, epidemic is evolving because you introduce an epidemic, it starts, it's not only the air transport which is responsible, but the other factors like uh, the, the, the crowding of population, the movement of population within country, uh, how borders are porous. So being able to uphold those factors uh, is something that we do account for uh, in, 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 uh, um, the, in our modeling. And then also the other thing is um, we, the model has gone through an aspect of doing uh, a lot of sensitivity analysis and validation based on the observed data. And it does fit the observed data quite well, uh, especially in the, in the early period. Uh, we are making a lot of improvements. Um, we do have 
uh, the um, what we call uncertainty bounds in our model. So we know that um, you can't be able to predict exactly the number, but uh, from what we are seeing in terms of the numbers and the observed what what is being reported in the country is it's something that um, is quite um, uh, it's feel that is quite credible. I, I wouldn't comment um, very extensively about the model um, into the specifics because the paper is actually under peer review as we speak, um, and uh, so because we really believe that peer review is a gold standard, and we're working on different improvements as we as we speak. And, and uh, for instance, accounting for aspects of how reliable is the reported data and other aspects like that, and trying to make corrections for it so that whatever we come up with next time is actually an improved version of what we've already produced. But yeah, so I think that's, that's really what we can comment about. Yeah, thank you for that. I, and I, I very much appreciate as well, too. I, I think um, um, I've had the opportunity to work with a modelers and, and certainly understand that um uh, but what a lot of people may not realize is how iterative a process modeling is and how it changes and gets retuned and and how valuable the peer review process is and and different construction of different models will sort of help uh sort of steer towards um different perspectives on what's going on and all with different kinds of uncertainty and different boundaries with that so it's um uh, uh, definitely well, well, well received and appreciate the general scope of, uh, of the model. That's really great. Um, so, so I think with that, so the, so the, you guys have this approach to modeling these relationships um, and are, are sort of building and, and iterating the model. Uh, what is the picture that it's giving you? What is it telling you right now in terms of um, uh, what's happening? Um, are there areas of Africa that are more at risk than others? Are we already seeing in the surveillance information more at risk than others? And, and how does that project out into the future, um, at least to the extent that you're um, able to, to talk about given the, the time horizon of the model and the increasing uncertainty the further out that we go? Yeah, so I think, uh, um, you know, um, as, as Tom mentioned, um, most of the observed data that you're seeing from the continent actually does fit uh, our model pretty well. Uh, in our model, we had North Africa, uh, Northern Africa uh, being uh, greatly impacted, Northern and Southern Africa, then West Africa, then Eastern Africa. And so um, th that, that has held true even with the observed reporting of the cases on the continent. Uh, the, 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 only, um, the, the only challenge there is that um, some, because of limited testing uh, across the continent, most of the observed cases that we are seeing might actually be underreported cases. Mm. And so, yeah, uh, and, and there's, there's there's been a couple of articles out in the news media the last three to four days highlighting that uh, different countries in Africa may actually not have a good handle of what the actual incidence, prevalence, and mortality uh, related to COVID-19 is. But, um, you know, broadly speaking, uh, our model actually does fit what is being observed on the ground. So, it, it, and in yeah. terms of explaining that early um, uh, case burden in North Africa and then traveling east and, and elsewhere, um, do you suspect that that's from the travel? I know you mentioned uh, travel and the importation of cases and then spreading from there, or, or do you have any insights from the work in terms of sort of why, why that it's spreading by that pattern? 
Yeah, um, I think as uh, Lauren said, uh, they, that early expansion factor of travel, uh, air travel, and uh, the connectivity internationally, uh, we see that as uh, quite a big driver, especially at the initial stages of the epidemic. But also the other uh, internal factors like uh, the urbanization is uh, quite a big uh, driver, especially if you look at what is happening in New York in terms of the concentration of people in, uh, in areas, like in urban areas, there is that easy spread uh, that happens. Uh, and also the other things, probably like uh, demographics, uh, they could play a role. So there are so many other factors that we have accounted for in our model, and some of them do look as influential, but we are, we are still looking into them. But as you rightly said, that proximity to uh, Europe, be, being able to travel, and then you look at places like in Johannesburg, also it's very well um, connected with the, the global um, um, the, the global travel. So I think those those factors do play a role. Um, the other part I wanted to touch on is uh, what Lawrence mentioned about the underreporting of the data. One of the things that we we are trying to account for in our model in in as we as we pack this forward is really being able to see how can we be able to fill those data gaps not only even just through the modeling but actual uh, collaboration with health systems to find a way of supporting them to be able to come with a better better numbers that can be able to be informative for decision making so can you talk a little bit more too, I think that's fascinating on how sort of the modeling information either is or could be or is designed to integrate into decision making. What kinds of decisions would you would you sort of expect, uh, whether it's travel restrictions, social distancing, things like that, how, how would that or has that played into some of the um, decision support because um, I think that's another big thing right we're seeing a lot of modeling data uh, and I appreciate you just um, uh, how, you know, the, the conversation about, you know, there are certain things it can do and certain things it can't do. And there are certain biases in the data, as you mentioned, testing is a big factor in limiting surveillance, but giving a rough picture. But, um, but um, I'd love to hear some thoughts in terms of sort of translating from, um, from the data to the decisions and, and uh, the uh, information into the policy. Um, what are some ways that that either is or could be used? Uh, so, you know, without, without giving away too much, um, two things the, the the first one is that the, um the, the next iteration of this is we, we we are working on what we are broadly calling a risk profile and mm -hmm. this is designed to work with, help countries be able to use data to make decisions from a risk perspective um uh, the, the the second thing is um on on our website that is curating our work uh, we are actually working on uh a dashboard that uh, different entities can use uh, to be able to make decisions and uh, you know focus scenarios and um, try and see given different parameters uh, what do they need to do and and those 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 should be coming online uh, pretty soon that's great, and we'll certainly link in the podcast description to the uh, um, to the project website as well too, so folks can see uh, the work to date and also follow these updates along the way. Yes, 
Jeff, another thing I wanted to add to what Lawrence just said is also this aspect of, um, in terms of supporting this policy translation, we're looking at it in the short term and into the long term. Uh, so in the short term space is really being able to help countries identify things like what are the resource needs, um, how can they prioritize, and this aspect of being able to see how they can be able to responsibly uh, focus because given the fact that you have re limited resources, you might want to have targeted interventions so that you can be effective. Uh, but then the other thing is in the long run, we are really going to play an active role in this aspect of um, health system strengthening, uh, especially on the data space on how countries can be able to be able to access different, I mean, different data streams, especially in the surveillance realm, but also being able to drive this aspect of also innovation. So those are areas that we are looking at in the long term in terms of contributing effectively to the continent-wide efforts. That's, that's really interesting. And I, I think it sort of segues into the next question I have, which is really sort of looking at this sort of zooming out even more. Um, and, I, and I know the models, you know, can only tell you so much and they can't predict the future. But, but I'm curious in terms of uh, the, the impacts, the, the projected impacts um, that you're seeing, um, what does this mean in terms of uh, development, in terms of uh, the, the trajectory uh, of the continent of countries within the continent? Um, how disruptive will this be? What sort of what challenges do you see this presenting? Um, and along those lines too, I know you mentioned innovation. Are there potential opportunities um, that it presents as well too? I know it's hard to think in terms of any kind of a silver lining with something so dramatically devastating, but are there, um, I, I guess more broadly, sort of what does is, what is the arc of COVID-19 mean for uh, countries and regions in the broader continent of Africa? Just a small, simple question. Yeah, so, um, you know, I think to, to, to kind of put this into context, I think we need to go back to 2013-14 um, when Ebola um, ravaged West Africa. And it, it did not just cripple West African healthcare systems, but it also, you know, changed livelihoods in a significant way. And, and back then there was this uh, discussion about resiliency, resilient healthcare systems, resilient economies, resilient societies uh, within the African continent. Um, and back then Ebola was kind of localized to West Africa with, you know, sporadic spread to other regions of the world but it wasn't at the same level of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. um, I, th I think moving forward in as far as development is concerned, um, we, we cannot dance around this question of resiliency. Uh, we're gonna need resilient economies, resilient healthcare systems, um, and resilient societies. And, and, and Africa uh, is kind of in an interesting place uh, um, I, I know Tom is going to talk a little bit more about this, but one of the things is it's going to require innovation. A and um, e even just as part of responding to COVID-19, it's been very interesting to see how different groups within the continent have innovated. Uh, you know, factories have been repurposed to manufacture uh, PPE, uh, pe uh, you know, um, engineers on the continent have figured out how to create uh, ventilators that would work given the context. You know, we have the use of drones to be able to uh, 
transport uh, testing supplies across the continent. It is this kind of thinking uh, around resiliency that is going to be needed uh, for the continent moving forward. Because I mean, um, and, and, and the other thing too is we can also borrow a lesson from HIV. H HIV took a while to take a stronghold on the continent. There was a lag, just like with COVID. But once it did, it did have massive impacts. And so uh, we kind of have to try and stay ahead of the game by focusing on resiliency so yeah. as not to um, go back to the negative effects on you know, life expectancy, uh, well-being, and livelihoods. Yeah. Just, just to build up on that, Jeffrey, um, one of the things to what uh, Lawrence has said, I think this aspect of um, the, the long-term impact of um, uh, COVID in Africa, it's something that I think not only it involves the African countries and nation states as they're focused inwards and the region, but I think it's a global health um, um, agenda. Um, and this is in terms of emergency preparedness. Uh, because if you don't, uh, you, the, your strongest chain is only as strong as your weakest link. And one of the things that we recognize is there are weaknesses within uh, African healthcare systems, especially in things like supply chains and other aspects like that. So surveillance systems. And, and if you have, um, given the fact that we are looking and saying this is a, a, a virus which is going to have resurgencies around and um, uh, in terms of we, as people, as countries return to normalcy, we are going to have resurgent epidemics. Uh, there is need for that aspect of solidarity across uh, the global health community, looking and saying, how can we be able to strengthen global health surveillance systems, global health preparedness, so that we respond? And, and I believe this really sits squarely at the intersection of innovation. So. I'm thinking of things like uh, digital health systems. So you can, if you look at the penetration of um, mobile phones in, in, in Africa, it's, uh, it's quite tremendous. So those have been leveraged in the financial services sector. So companies like M-Pesa with Safaricom do have that kind of um, penetration. So uh, if you look at the opportunity that sits there right at being able to innovate given the the, the ability to, because there is talent, there is, um, uh, the infrastructure could be weak, but there's an opportunity to innovate around and be able to strengthen healthcare systems so that we are able to respond to this kind of epidemics better uh, into the future. I, I really actually enjoyed that discussion um, and uh, uh, description because, you know, a lot of the work that we've been doing uh, at my center at Columbia and a lot of the conversations I've had, you know, a lot of times that we like, gravitate to these words of capacity building and things like that. But what I really have come to realize is that there's incredible capacity that already exists within communities. And, you know, a lot of times we look for, uh, you know, we look to the past for solutions to problems in the future. And I, I also very much appreciate that, you know, some of these answers are going to come from innovation. Some of these answers we haven't thought of yet. And they're, they're um, and some of the solutions that we're seeing now are coming from the communities themselves and are, are coming from, um, you know, folks looking at, at the problem and looking at what they have to work with and, and uh, figuring it out. Um, and the other piece too, is just talking about that it's, you know, COVID-19 pandemics in general, public health in general, right? 
Um, it's so interconnected with everything else. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned the travel and interconnectedness as a part of the model, but also um, supply chain resilience, right? And, you know, I know we've been looking at things like, can you work on a highly efficient just-in-time supply chain when all of a sudden you need to triple it or quadruple it or increase it by a magnitude of 10 overnight? Uh, is that model resilient um, in the face of, of the kinds of threats that we face? Um, so I think really appreciate those, those, those insights and perspectives, but also, you know, lessons of hope in terms of what is being done and what innovations are already emerging. Um, despite these climbing case amounts and, and uh, very difficult situations. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think so. So kind of along those lines as well, too. Um, what are you, I, I know we've, we've talked about the, the model only projects out currently through June 30th and, and is showing this continued increase. Um, what are you keeping a close eye on these days? What do you think is going to have the biggest impact in terms of bending these curves either to the right or to the left? Um, what are, what are the things that either, yeah, what, what are you interested in and, and what do you think is, um, going to have the biggest impacts in, in let's say the next six to 12 months? Uh, I think two, two things, two things that we're thinking of and, you know, working on together as a team. The first one is uh, the, this idea that I mentioned earlier of uh, risk profile. Uh, I think with limited testing, um, with limited supplies and capacity within countries and health systems across the continent, a, a, a risk profile might be an innovative way to help countries plan and respond and try and figure out where to put the limited resources that are available. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, other, the, the other piece is um, if and when, uh, you know, pharmaceutical interventions do come into the picture, how do you get that to where it is needed most? Um, and how do you combine that with non-pharmaceutical interventions? Um, and, and that is actually pretty much linked to this risk profile idea. And, and that's, that's what we are working on and, and thinking about in the short and long term. I don't know yeah. if I missed anything else, Tom. Uh, one of the other things I'd like to add, Lawrence, thanks for that, uh, is uh, this aspect of um, collaboration. Um, one of the things that this epidemic has done is, um, has, uh, from if you just look at even our, the construct of our team, we have uh, people spread of uh, different countries. Um, so we, we are cooperating uh, researchers in uh, Botswana, Balangla Science in Botswana, Uzma in um, Kenya. And uh, so we have uh, this, this big spread. And they, this is being replicated in many, uh, at many levels, at individual level, at the research level, at the uh, cross-country level. So, for instance, for these to be dealt with effectively, countries have to collaborate, given the, the fact that borders are very porous in our, in our, in our country, I mean, our continent, because you have people who are relatives on different sides of the border. So there's, there's that mobility around. So there has to be cross-border initiatives. So this aspect of collaboration, um, even in research, even in innovating, I think is going to be a theme that really helps us move forward and leapfrog in, in empowering or strengthening our systems 
to be able to, to respond to the challenges that we face. Um, I think we have taken a lot of lessons. Um, if you look at uh, some of the countries that have actually responded quite uh, strongly, they have taken uh, strong lessons uh, from the pre uh, previous epidemics. Look at uh, South Africa. Uh, the, the government of South Africa was very quick in responding very quickly. And this is a country which was uh, heavily affected by HIV. So things like having community health workers and other interventions was something that the lessons which were before have been uh, from the past epidemics have been taken in to be able to see how to respond. But also this aspect of collaboration, I see it as becoming a central theme uh, around the kind of work we're going to be doing in health systems around the past Africa. You know, that, that's also interesting too. I've heard these discussions in a lot of different places on kind of the unprecedented collaboration. Um, and I think that's worth noting. There's obviously a lot of uh, things to point to that didn't go well, certainly in, in the United States where we're as adept as ever as pointing the political finger at different groups and, and uh, have uh, things to, to <laughs> be frustrated with. But, I, uh, but I, I also appreciate that note that there's such an unprecedented level of collaboration and that there are lessons to draw from that aren't just sort of for the historical record, but are directly applicable in the arc of this pandemic and, and um, can be learned and implemented now and, and into the, the future because unfortunately, Pandemics have a long time horizon um, and uh, yeah, time to implement um, some of these lessons as they're accumulated. Yeah, very, very true. So, I mean, you know, we, we, um, we, we are a global society and um, it, it would be remiss if we do not learn from each other and work together. Um, that, that is, that is uh, uh, the only way we are going to be able to navigate this and be able to overcome it. Um, and um, uh, we, we need to, you know, take the hard lessons and, and, and help each other out so that uh, uh, we, we come out, this, out of this stronger and better. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, uh, one of the things that I think is very fundamental is this aspect of looking at, given the travel, given the connectivity around the world, they, you cannot recede from global collaborations. Um, in as much as it's happening at regional collaborations, we're having a number of countries looking inwards. I think this is not a time to start looking inwards. It's a time to start saying, look, we are looking at solving problems internally, but also you can only solve problems uh, by collaborating with your neighbors. When you're, if you're living in a place where you, the houses are interconnected, as the world is interconnected, you don't, you don't start saying, well, my neighbor's house is on fire, that is his problem. You have to find a way of saying, let's put out the fire together so that then we can be able to make sure that we are living in a safe and um, a resilient environment. Yeah, very, very well said. Um, um, I appreciate uh, all those comments and also kind of the lesson as well, too, that, you know, I think maybe sometimes we see countries like the U.S. as um, uh, maybe not all of us, but at times, you know, as as net exporters of lessons learned and best practices. And it's really by I love this theme of collaboration because I think there's so much to be learned as well, too, from the innovations that are, are occurring from the various dynamics across um, across across the globe, um, and and for yes. this work in Africa as well too, um, that the lessons learned go both ways, um, and that's that's really the true nature of collaboration. And and if there is 
something positive that comes from that. I hope that that's the ultimate legacy is that a lot of these collaborations that are pressed into being due to the crisis become a permanent fixture in, in building resilience. Yeah, actually, exactly. Jeff, it's, inter it's interesting you mentioned that there's actually a, gr a growing literature on reverse innovation. How can innovations in the global south be adapted by um, the global north? And I think that, you know, uh, this is yet another opportunity uh, for, for reverse innovation. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's, um, uh, and hopefully a broader sort of culture of innovation that, that really looks at, I, I, I like to say in a lot of my presentations too, that, you know, in, in disaster resilience, the problems we have are so complex, we need all the help we can get. <laughs> so whether, exactly. whether from different fields, different cultures, different geographies, uh, it, to me, it's a different vantage point and a different set of tools. Yes solutions being brought to the problem and uh, um, that's that's where we're going to find what works so yeah sure. so along those lines so really really amazing work going on um, you know, we started talking about modeling and now and are ending somewhere around global disaster resilience but I think all part and parcel with this with this uh, area being you know driving decision making with data embracing the uncertainty, embracing the power of collaboration and the opportunities for um, and benefits that come from that and, and really making that a permanent fixture in the way we look at resilience, both locally and globally. Um, so, so one, thank you so much for the work that you and your team are doing. It's so important, but also how can folks keep track of what you're doing? I know you mentioned the website, um, but are, are there other ways for folks to keep track of the work, both of this project as well as uh, other initiatives that you're involved in? Uh, yeah, so the website is the primary um, uh, point to go and, you know, you'll find information on what we've worked on and what you're working on, what the team is involved. And uh, the, the other, um, it, there's also an opportunity for those that are interested at, uh, to partner with us. Um, the, there is a link on the website that, you know, you can submit or you could reach out to any of us on the team. Uh, and we, we are happy to, again, collaborate, work with others to be able to uh, move, this move this agenda forward um, and, you know, work more and get at getting closer to more and more resilient societies and healthcare systems. So, so um, our website is, uh, is a good place to, uh, to get to know what we're doing and to reach out to us and contact us. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, uh, both of you, for all the work that you're doing and express my gratitude to the broader team. I know that's also working on this. Um, I know I'll definitely be following and seeing, you know, as more publications and more information comes out and uh, would love to keep the conversation going with both of you. But uh, just really appreciate the time today. Appreciate the work that you're doing and just the, the insights that you've shared with us. Um, thank yeah, you, thank Jeff. you, Jeff, for having us. All right, and again, a big, big thank you to Drs. Werde and Achoki for taking the time for the conversation today and for all of the amazing work being done, as well as for the for uh, really the whole team at the COVID-19 in Africa Data Science Initiative. Also want to give a special thank you to Dr. Uzma Alam, who actually uh, introduced me uh, to the colleagues we spoke with today uh, and is also part of that initiative, and you rem may remember her from an earlier episode of the podcast, uh, and actually our first uh, one that was globally oriented. So... Um, Great to see these connections, great to see this amazing work being done, and always great to to get 
many different vantage points on the work that's going on out there, both domestically, globally, and anything and everything in between. Uh, so if you like what we're doing here, uh, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. It really helps people find the show, uh, recommend it to a friend. Uh, if you want to keep the conversation going, we're on Twitter. We're at DisasterPolitik. Feel free to email us at DisasterPoliticsPodcast at gmail.com. And uh, with that, again, I hope everybody's doing well. And uh, whatever you're doing, please continue to stay safe out there.